You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I have the privilege of introducing our speaker of the hour to you. As a note, we are going to sing today with the gospel choir, but we're going to do that following our speaker's message. So you can look forward to worshiping in song together in just a few minutes. And I do want to add my voice to echo, really enjoyed Mary Poppins. So thank you, Ignited Class. It was really delightful. So much talent. I was like, what could be next? Tap dancing, what's next? Umbrellas with lights in it, what's next? Kites on strings. It was amazing. Thank you all. It was so good. So uh, we have a series at Asbury called Faith and Culture. And today is one of our Faith and Culture series, Faith and Culture, Love Undocumented, a conversation on immigration. So uh, our speaker of the hour is Sarah Caseda. Some things you need to know about Sarah. When she was a freshman in high school, she moved here to Wilmore, Kentucky. And she was a freshman here at Asbury University and then did a year with Mission Year, for those of you who know Mission Year, and then completed her undergraduate at Trevecca Nazarene University in Nashville. She went on to get a Master's of Sociology and then worked in L.A. as the director of an L.A. studies program that dealt with issues such as immigration. There she met her husband, Billy, from Guatemala, and her story about their relationship and journey as love undocumented and the process of immigration is in her book, Love Undocumented. And I hope that you will look it up on Amazon. It's a great read to hear more about her life. Sarah is now the co-owner of an organization called Ruby Brick, which does social media marketing and marketing management for small nonprofits. So she's been doing that for several years. And so those of you who are interested in the social media work world. You could catch Sarah at the end today, and I'm sure she'd love to meet you and connect with you. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing her story today. I think you'll uh, find this opportunity to think deeply and well and with gospel eyes about immigration will stretch us and start a conversation. At 4 p.m. today in Kinlaw Boardroom, we're going to continue that conversation. So if you're able to join us at 4 p.m. in Kinlaw Boardroom, uh, there is a flex credit avail- available, and it will be more about a bit of Immigration 101 if you're interested in hearing more. So if today stirs your attention, it opens up your eyes and ears and your heart to join this conversation, we'd love to see you at 4 o'clock. Well, uh, let's invite and welcome Sarah as she comes to speak with us. If you had told me years ago when I was sitting up there in the balcony as the anointed freshman class at Asbury that I would be back in this building talking about immigration and faith and my experience in a mixed status family, I would have been like, what? What on earth? And also, what is a mixed status family? What does that even mean? Immigration, when I was in college and lived in Kentucky, was so far off my radar. It was something that didn't impact me, that I hadn't really thought much about. It wasn't in the news and headlines as much as it is today. Or if it was, I missed it. And so it wasn't until, in fact, I was actually finishing up my master's degree at UK, and I was interviewing for a job at a Christian university in LA. And part of that role 
is I would be working with immigrant families across Los Angeles. And so they asked me some sort of question to the extent of, what is your perspective on immigration? And thank goodness, this is before everyone was obsessed with Zoom. I don't even know if Zoom had been invented yet, but it was like an old-timey phone interview. So no one could see my like panicked expression as I tried to quickly formulate an interview response to what is your perspective on immigration? So I kind of rallied and I said, well, you know, I think my, per my perspective is twofold because I've got this, right? Um, one, I think we should welcome people who come to this country. And two, I think people should follow the law. And all these years later and the different experiences that I've walked through, I still basically believe those two things. But can I tell you what I didn't know then was what I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know, but God knew. God knew that the experience of immigrants in our country was more complicated than what I knew, and I was about to go on a journey that would expand my knowledge and my heart around this issue. And it all started with a cute boy. When I met my husband, Billy, he wasn't like an immigrant first. He was just a 20-something guy. And in fact, if you had asked him, what's one adjective you would use to describe yourself, he would have been like, obviously, I'm a musician. That's my like, first identifier. So when he's telling me how he came from Guatemala to the United States, he's like, well, I was in an international performing arts competition. Well, by the time I met him, he was installing satellite television, so I had a lot of questions. Turned out he had been the lead singer in a Spanish Christian hardcore rock band. And apparently they were like moderately famous in the hardcore Christian rock scene of Central America. And so the next step for him was Los Angeles. Now, almost every guy I went to high school with had been in a rock band. Almost every guy at my youth group at Wilmore Free Methodist Church was in a rock band. And so while I didn't know much about immigration or Guatemala, Billy felt very familiar. Immigration in our culture today often starts as an issue. It's a headline or a political position. But for me, it started with people. I ended up getting that job at the university in California, so I was working with all these immigrant families, and now I was dating someone from Guatemala. I didn't care about immigration. I cared about immigration because it impacted people I cared about. When we start with people, it impacts the way we see. People are made in the image of God. Headlines are not. Headlines are strategically written to stir up fear and panic and controversy so that you'll click that button. But relationships can serve as an antidote to fear. When it comes to immigration, fear drives a lot of our rhetoric and our politics around it, but this is actually nothing new. And so I want to walk along one of my favorite Old Testament stories today that I suspect will be familiar to many of you. Starting in Exodus 1, 6 through 11, says, Now Joseph and all his brothers in that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to the people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. 
I want to draw your attention to the phrase, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. This Pharaoh was not in relationship with the Israelites. Without that connection to history and the personal relationships, it was a breeding ground for fear to grow. In Exodus, that fear quickly led to dehumanization, abuse, and injustice. Because here's the thing, caricatures and boogeymen are really easy. Enemies are really easy. It's great to stir up a group of people to fight. People, on the other hand, are incredibly messy and nuanced and complicated. We were on our third date when Billy told me he was undocumented. Or at least he tried to. I literally had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't understand what he was saying. I knew he had come to the US on an airplane with a tourist visa for his performing arts competition. Then a friend had asked him to stay and help in a local church. Then he'd gotten a job in construction. Somewhere along the way, the visa had expired. He was still here, and now he was an undocumented immigrant. But to me, he was a musician, a youth pastor, and a construction inspector. He wasn't what I thought an undocumented immigrant was supposed to be. What I didn't know then was how common it was for new undocumented immigrants to be on overstayed visas. And in fact, between 2008 and 2015, our border security had grown in effectiveness and the majority of new undocumented immigrants were actually overstays of visas. But I just shrugged to myself and I was like, well, if this relationship goes anywhere, I hope he gets that figured out. We'll see. Um, because I was certain that people who didn't have their paperwork in order were doing that on purpose, that they wanted to live outside the law, that they were trying to stay hidden. What I didn't know then was that a Guatemalan can't renew their visa inside the US and definitely not if it's expired. And in actuality, there was no line for him to wait in or way for him to apply to live here legally, except for one. We'd been dating a couple months when Billy told me he'd visited a lawyer to see what his options might be. Now, it's important for this next part that you understand how independent my husband is. He doesn't like to need anyone. He doesn't like to ask for help. He likes to get things done. He's an Enneagram 8, if you're into any of that. And so we're sitting in front of his house, and he's telling me, hey, I visited this lawyer. There's really no options for me to uh, fix my status. Um, you know, there's nothing I can do except one thing, marry a US citizen. Whoa. I mean, I'd probably seen that in a movie, but I was like, I didn't know that was a thing. And it was new and surprising information to me, which must have shown on my face, because his response is to start rapid fire talking. I hate this. I hate that you would ever think that I might have dated you for this reason. I don't ever want you or anyone else to think that. You know what? We should just break up. Um, excuse me. What is happening? I didn't even know 30 seconds ago that this was a possibility, so no, I haven't thought that's why you were dating me all this time. It's the first and only time someone used the line, it's not you, it's immigration law. We should break up. <laughs> so we took deep breaths. I said, let's chill out a little bit. We decided not to break up over immigration pathways. And uh, I was actually really zen about the whole thing, and I think some of that is because I didn't think that could possibly be true. Because from my perspective, I assumed somebody who was good and law-abiding and hard-working and so cute could obviously get papers to live here in the United States peacefully. Of course, what I didn't know then was that 
it's actually very narrow requirements for people to be able to apply for legal, legal permanent residence. And Billy is not the only person that goes and meets with lawyers and finds themselves backed into a corner. Similarly, in this story in Exodus, we find several women feeling like the law has forced their hand. Picking up where we left off, we see the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. And that's when the king of Egypt instructs the midwives, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. These were women backed into a corner by the law. But the scripture tells us, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. As most of you probably know, these midwives protected the life of Moses when he was born to Jochebed. Jochebed is another woman who finds herself staring into the law and finding no options. Exodus 2 tells us when she saw that Moses was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, then placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. This is a mom backed into a corner. For many moms and dads throughout history and in our current moment who send their children on to safety where they cannot go, it is the only option they see. It's what people do for the people they love, for their family. A few months later, Billy and I were about to come family. We had gotten engaged, we were super excited, so we did what every young, newly engaged couple does and we went to see our immigration attorney. He, did, he was not nearly as enthusiastic as we were about our upcoming nuptials. And, and actually the first thing he told us was, you can't do anything as an engaged couple. You need to get married and then come back here. Well, that was not what I expected. Um, it's fine. I also then learned something else that I hadn't known about immigration. Some people, even when they marry a US citizen, have to leave the country and are barred for up to 10 years before the possibility of applying to return. This was not our situation because Billy had arrived legally with a visa to sing, except for one thing. It turns out they give you this tiny little piece of paper when you're coming into the country that is sort of the sole proof that you came in legally and that explains why you're here. And being the uh, you know, on top of it, 20-something guy that he was, he had no idea where that piece of paper was. So our lawyer says, well, hmm, now this has gotten really complicated. So actually, go ahead and get married, come back and meet with me, and we'll see what we can do. But there's a possibility that after you get married, you'll need to move to Guatemala and live there anywhere from three months to 10 years, and then you'll be able to apply to come back. Okay. I mentioned at the start of this that immigration wasn't really on my radar because it hadn't impacted me. But as my time in LA working with immigrant families and my time spent with Billy, I'd gotten closer to the broader issue as well. I'd become passionate about the things that I was hearing. I had listened in shock when Billy told me that he, a construction company he had worked for, he had lived in a closet for a year in their warehouse with all of the other guys that worked there. I had watched nervously during our engagement while his boss refused to pay him and his coworkers for a month's worth of work 
knowing that none of them had any legal recourse to recover those wages. I'd become passionate about immigration policy and the ways the U.S. was and was not welcoming people and the way the church was and was not welcoming people. But now there was this. Get married, roll the dice, and we'll see if you can live here where your home is or if you have to move to Guatemala for 10 years. This might have been a little bit more than I bargained for. Self-preservation started to kind of whisper in my ear. I value standing in solidarity with my growing number of immigrant friends, but I was also afraid of personal sacrifice. I wanted to engage in the world and stand up for justice, but I also wanted to be able to like roll it back in when things got a little too crazy. In his book, Break Open the Sky, the former World Relief President Stephen Bowman writes, when we are afraid, we are more likely to compromise what's most important to us. Our convictions about faith, character, or even the nature of truth. We are especially susceptible when we are offered some form of real or perceived security in exchange for compromising our faith. In that moment in the lawyer's office, I felt that tension between staying true to my convictions and this person I loved and that pull of perceived security and comfort. Thankfully, I got married. And nine months after we met, Billy and I walked down the aisle in Pasadena, California. You might, like me, think that immigration wouldn't have a role to play on our wedding day specifically, but I was wrong. Um, one of the most difficult parts of our wedding was that Billy's parents had applied for visas to attend, and they were denied twice. Once again, I hadn't known how tricky and difficult and honestly somewhat random that process would be. When I'd flown to Guatemala earlier that year, where I had met my future in-laws by myself without Billy because he couldn't travel, that's a whole other story you can read about my book if you're interested. But when I'd flown to Guatemala, they just stamped a visa in my passport when I arrived. I hadn't had to pay any money, do any interviews, or any kind of thing like that. Some people have that experience when they fly to the States, but for Guatemalans, there's a lengthy interview process, fees to be paid, you have to show you own property in Guatemala, have money in the bank, all these different criteria. All of which my in-laws met and yet were still denied twice. After Billy and I got married, we officially became a mixed status family. So this is the phrase that's used to describe families where people have different immigration statuses. So it might be U.S. citizen children whose parents are undocumented. It might be someone who has a green card who's married to a U.S. citizen. Sometimes parents and kids have it and one child is undocumented. There's all sorts of different configurations. But we learned that we were joining a group of 16 million people in the U.S. who live in mixed status families. I'm going to return to our story in Exodus because one of my favorite characters is about to enter the scene. So Jochebed has just put Moses in the river. And starting in verse 4, we read, His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then Moses' sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So Miriam went and got the baby's mother. 
my girl Miriam. She is the older sister, the one born in the right time and in the right gender to not be affected by this law of the Pharaoh. Her life was safe, but her family member, her brother that she loved, was not. They had a mixed relationship with the law of the day. He was impacted, she was not, except that he was her family. So you can see why I relate to her, right? She is asked to stand by and watch out for Moses. Jochebed is not in this part of the story, and it's Miriam who's trailing along the river, watching and waiting to see what will happen to the brother that she loves. I find myself holding my breath with her. I can't help but imagine what emotions are running through her young mind. Like, is she worried about what's going to happen to her brother? Is she worried about what's going to happen to her if she gets discovered? Is she confused by her mom's choices? Or is she like, obviously this is all going to work out? Like, we don't know. Miriam has not released her memoir yet, so we can only speculate about kind of what she's walking through. But I connect with Miriam because I believe there are moments when God asks us to faithfully stand by someone who is experiencing danger or suffering. We may not know exactly what we're supposed to do. We might feel confused or fearful or bored. But the invitation is for us to be to participate and to be present, faithfully walking alongside. It may not feel like enough, but God is at work. And after all this waiting and standing by, Miriam is present when Pharaoh's daughter discovers Moses. She speaks up. When the moment is right, she uses her voice to advocate for Moses to a powerful woman. Again, I wonder if she's like second-guessing herself, stealing herself with courage to do this, or if she's like, I totally got this, you know, who knows? But regardless of all that, she acts out of love for her brother. Her faithfulness in walking alongside him led to her moment of speaking up and offering Jochebed to nurse Moses. Miriam reunites their family. My guess is that most people in this room are not directly impacted by immigration policy. Some are likely affected because people they love, parents, cousins, coworkers, or friends are impacted. But I want to put forth that every Christian in this room is part of a mixed status family because the American church is a mixed status family. Our faith community includes generational U.S. citizens, undocumented immigrants, DACA recipients and dreamers, mixed status couples, and all everything in between. Many of the asylum seekers coming to our border today are our brothers and sisters in Christ. A few years ago, I was inside of an ICE detention center in South Texas where I met a woman named Maricela. She was Guatemalan, and she graciously shared that she had been in detention for 11 months, fighting for her asylum case in the U.S., she told us that she felt more connected to God since coming to the United States and prayed often. But she said that the guards would yell at her when she prayed in the dormitories. They told her, you can do that in the chapel, but you can't seek God here. Of course, God was and is present in every part of the detention center with Maricela. God is present with those who are lonely, mourning, suffering, and marginalized. She and I had the opportunity to pray together as sisters in Christ in a mixed-status family in the U.S. 
We start with people because when we fail to view the image of God in immigrants, we can fall into the trap of fear and dehumanization that we see with Pharaoh. And it can lead to violence and oppression. But when we start with people, we find that it's more complicated than we ever imagined and quite frankly, more complicated than we'd like it to be. Still, we are in a mixed status family and it's the people that sustain us because the work is not quick. There is a lot of time watching and waiting along the riverbank. I've been advocating for immigration reforms for about more than 15 years and an issue could not carry me through the long haul. It's people that can. 10 years ago, Billy became a naturalized citizen and that chapter of our life closed, but I'm so grateful for all God taught me as we walked through that season and the way it's impacted my life going forward. There is no single Christian response to immigration. It would be easier if that were the case. But Miriam's example offers our invitation today. Where is God asking us to walk alongside someone who is vulnerable? Even if it's risky or boring or hard because it doesn't feel like it's enough? Where might God be asking us to speak up? Even if it feels kind of nerve wracking or we don't know how it'll go. Immigration will continue to be complicated, but loving people, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters, can be simple. Thank you so much for listening to my story. May you take Miriam with you this week as you seek to follow God's invitation.